Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It sounds too good to be true, I know. And how did you ever miss this? In 2005, the highly respected science journal Nature published the findings of a team of scientists from Zurich. They demonstrated that inhaling a nasal spray containing the hormone oxytocin made humans significantly more trusting. Using 128 participants, the researchers created a sort of investment game in which players designated the investors were asked to trust their money with anonymous trustees. Half of the investors were nasally administered uh, three puffs containing oxytocin. Half of those who puffed invested. Among those who did not inhale, only a quarter invested. Oxytocin doesn't make you nicer or more optimistic or even willing to gamble, they say. It just increases trusting behavior in people. Well, it took about five minutes for a lab in New York City to start bottling this stuff. They called it liquid trust, and you can still buy it today on Amazon. They say that after showering in the morning, still just spray on a squirt or two of uh, odorless liquid trust onto your skin, and the people you meet over the next few hours will trust you without really knowing why they trust you. <laughs> Crazy, right? It sounds so much like a scam, but there's real science behind it. Oxytocin is a naturally occurring human hormone that plays a significant role in childbirth, uh, breastfeeding, and romantic love. Trusting people really seems to have something to do with body chemistry. The price has dropped from $50 a quarter an ounce down to 25 over the years, but act now because there are only 10 left last time I checked on Amazon. For example, if you're you know, speed dating this weekend, spray on a little liquid trust, right? <laughs> Trying to sell that old jalopy that barely runs, the one you ought to probably give to charity, try a squirt of liquid trust. Turn that old clunker into real hard cash. Scheduled to testify before Congress? A lot of that going on these days, right? Just a little spritz of liquid trust on your way in, and there'll be putty in your hands. At least that's what they claim. Is that what real trust is all about, though? Chemicals? Uh, hormones? Jesus is asking his disciples for more than just a cent in our gospel lesson. And they know it. You know, they're all in a very small boat on a very big sea when a violent storm comes up. One even these experienced fishermen can't handle. When you look at the, uh, a map of the Sea of Galilee, uh, it's definitely no Pacific Ocean. But the geography of it, where, where it sits, can create violent storm winds that blow down off the Golan Heights and then get trapped in that large freshwater basin. There are records of storms in that sea creating 10-foot waves. And Jesus and his disciples weren't exactly on a cruise ship. Let's first recall why they were even there. You know, reading this lesson in context makes it clear that uh, it had been a pretty long day. Uh, Jesus had been forced to preach and teach from a boat just offshore because of the size of the crowds that had gathered there to hear him. Um, and what he did, uh, he taught them with a whole boatload of parables. He told the one about the sower who wasn't very careful scattering his seed, how some of it fell on rocks, some of it fell on, on a hard path, some of it fell in the thorns, some of it fell on fertile soil, and just what happened to each. Uh, he, he taught them with a, uh, about the sower who, who sowed weeds among his neighbor's wheat. He talked about uh, the one we, we read last week, about the tiny mustard seed that grows into a plant so big 
that birds can actually build their nests in its branches. As the day wound down, he dismissed the crowds and returned home with the disciples. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke uh, each include this story in their gospel. So, you know, we know it, needs, it has to be an important one. When they arrived back at the house, Jesus took time to explain the parables to them. But it wasn't long before the crowds began to gather in the street outside. In fact, there were so many people, Luke tells us, that Jesus' mother and his brothers were outside trying to get in and they couldn't get through all the people. Of course, by this time, evening is coming on and Jesus and his disciples make their way down, back down to their boat. And Jesus tells them, let's go across to the other side. They shove off and as they get underway, uh, Jesus goes to the back of the boat where there's a cushion and promptly falls asleep. It was a long, tiring day. Remember, Jesus was true God as well as true man. And so he got tired. And he got hungry, just like we do. Well, they're still uh, not entirely free of flowers. A few other boats launch as well, presumably just to tag along. Kind of like those paparazzi that, that stalk Hollywood celebrities. But in this case, it's with admiration in mind, not compensation. This is actually the only time those other boats are even mentioned in the Bible. So we really don't know their fate. Uh, Mark's telling is really about what happened to his boat, the one with the disciples and Jesus in it. Now, back in 1986, during a drought in Galilee, the remains of an ancient sailboat were uncovered. Carbon dating placed its age between 100 B.C. and 100 A.D., right in Jesus' time. At 26 feet in overall length, at its widest part, it was 7 feet across. It had a very shallow draft and was built for a single square sail. It probably could have held no more than 15 people, making it a likely candidate for a boat owned by one of Jesus' fishermen disciples, maybe just like the boat they were in. Now, these men were, most of them anyway, were experienced seamen, but when faced with winds like our Santa Ana's and waves as high as 10 feet, that little boat didn't stand a chance of staying on top of the water, no matter who was sailing it. Despite their desperate bailing, these experienced men were frightened for their lives, all of them except Jesus, who remained asleep through the whole thing. Now, we know that they had learned to trust Jesus when things were going well. But would they trust him when he was asleep? This lesson is all about faith and trust. Faith and trust. But it begs the question, doesn't it? Are we willing to trust Jesus even, you know, when he was asleep? When you're in the doctor's office, for example, waiting for a diagnosis, am I willing to trust a sleeping Jesus? When I'm in the middle of a bitter dispute, am I willing to trust a sleeping Jesus? When I'm making a change in my career path, am I willing to trust a sleeping Jesus? When I'm challenged by my failure to serve God beyond my own means and interests, am I willing to trust a sleeping Jesus? Oh, Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, I might be able to trust. A Jesus opening the eyes of the blind, I might be able to trust. A Jesus teaching a crowd on the hillside, I might be able to trust. A Jesus rebuking the Pharisees, I might be able to trust. But a sleeping Jesus? Probably not, as much as we'd like to answer in the affirmative. Now, whether the waves were 10 feet in height or 8 feet or even 2 feet, we can understand the fear in these experienced sailors' voices when they eventually wake Jesus up saying, Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? They've already tried everything they can think of to save themselves, but nothing is working. And it's only as a last resort, and because they're scared to death, that they turn to Jesus, not the man Jesus. 
Okay, not the carpenter's son from Nazareth, not the teacher in the temple. They turn to Jesus the divine. They throw themselves entirely into the hands of God. Was that faith? Was that authentic trust? Or was it a faith and trust brought on by fear of, you know, foxhole variety? And sometimes you have to wonder if God doesn't allow some people to get in trouble because that's the only time they think of him. People with a regular prayer life, people who attend church regularly because it's more important to them than all the things that, that people who don't always seem to be preoccupied with have a definite advantage over those who put our number one God into their number two or number three slot. Regular worship helps people see God in the midst of their troubles because they see God with them all day long. They're used to turning to the Lord, not just in dire need, but even for a little comfort and conversation. You know, going to the well of living water for help is a, a natural for them. Storms may cause them to stumble, but rarely to fall. After Jesus was awakened and accused of not caring whether or not they perished, he spoke to the wind and the waves. Peace, he said. Be still, he shouted. And immediately the wind stopped howling and the raging sea turned to calm. At just his word. Then he turned to the soaking wet disciples and he said, why are you afraid? Where's your faith? Where's your trust? It wasn't Jesus' spritz of uh, ode to trust that renewed their confidence in him. Not his body odor or his perfume that, that gave him credibility. Having just experienced Jesus' power and not for the first time, that's why they trusted him. But see, their actions showed that they still lacked the kind of faith they were going to need in the months ahead when, when Jesus wasn't with them in person. They'd already seen people healed by Jesus. They'd seen him, uh, demons expelled by Jesus. They'd even seen the dead brought back to life. And yet in their moment of trouble, they let their doubts open the door to their fears. And they grabbed onto those instead of their faith. Until Jesus stilled the wind and the waves, they had one storm threatening them on the outside and another one, the struggle with trusting God even in, in every circumstance, even when it seems like he's sleeping, you know, grappling with them on the inside. How often do we do that? Hold on to our fears and, and lose sight of our, our faith. Probably way too often, right? Knowing what they already knew, having seen what they'd already seen, they had no reason to be afraid. I mean, even if it was God's will that the wind and the waves sent them all to the bottom of the sea, they should still have been able to face their death in confidence and without fear because death for the believer just means new life in heaven with Jesus. In life and in death, God would be with them. He never takes his people where he isn't with his people. They knew that. And we can only imagine how they must have hung their heads in shame. Now, what if Jesus hadn't been physically in the boat with them? Would that have made any difference? Would that have justified their fears? No. You know, just before he ascends back into heaven to take his place at the right hand of the Father, he's going to say to them, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always. It's not Jesus' physical presence that's needed in the storms, to still the storms in our life. It's his spiritual presence. It's his promise to be with us always. Now, that being said, you know, following Jesus won't disaster-proof your life. In fact, it might be easier if faith and trust did come in a bottle sometimes. 
There are, there are going to be times in, in the midst of your troubles when you're going to feel like Jesus has left you alone, abandoned and stranded in a storm. You see, Jesus, you know, will calm some of our storms, but he won't necessarily calm all of our storms. In fact, we have to trust that Jesus knows which storms need calming. After his resurrection, he had to tell Thomas, the disciple who, who doubted because he wasn't, you know, with the others when Jesus made his first in-person uh, Easter evening appearance to them, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Belief is a powerful thing. It's more powerful than hormones. It's more power than, powerful than chemicals. It makes us live differently, and it's not short-lived. It's simply lived. If the message title this morning sounds a little familiar to uh, some of you, that's because uh, the first part is written by, uh, was written by Gordon Lightfoot. It's uh, one from one of his songs called The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. The song is a story about a freighter named Edmund Fitzgerald that went down with all hands in a storm on Lake Superior in 1975. The ship was a giant ore carrier, 729 feet in length. It was the largest carrier on the Great Lakes from 1958 until 1971. The Fitzgerald was labeled the pride of the American flag. On November 10, 1975, the Fitzgerald was hauling a heavy load of ore to Detroit, Michigan when it ran into a storm. This storm generated 27 to 30 foot waves with a following sea. A following sea and high winds uh, can actually turn a ship sideways or, or push it uh, uh, under the waves ahead. During the evening hours, the ship, ship simply disappeared from radar screens. It must have just sank in a matter of minutes. It now rests on the bottom of Lake Superior, broken in two with, with the bow right side up and the stern upside down still loaded with its cargo and all 29 of its hands. In Lightfoot's ballad about the disaster, he asked, does anyone know where the love of God goes when the waves turn the minutes to hours? Certainly there were believers on board that night who were praying up a storm that God would calm the seas. But the ship still went down. They might have wondered in their last moments if God had been napping in their distress. As in any stressful situation, from a life threatening uh, violence to finding a job so you can pay your rent. Life sometimes seems to, to kind of slow down as we wait for some kind of rescue. But the rescuer isn't sleeping. Jesus still rescues. He saves us in our real need. See, the disciples thought that the danger lay outside the boat. The lesson Jesus wanted them to learn was already lurking inside the boat, inside their own hearts. They weren't living in faith but in fear. We're human. We're a fallen people struggling to get by in a fallen world, and storms blow into our lives suddenly and without warning. A storm might come raging in the form of a pink slip or bad news from a doctor. It can accompany a simple knock on the door by a policeman late one night. It can be an unexpected turnaround of circumstances, but however it comes, suddenly things get clouded and we don't know which way to turn, and when we lose direction, we get lost. And we, when we feel lost, we get scared. And when we feel scared, fear and doubt rise up and try to take over. But God will never take us anywhere he isn't with us. We can trust Jesus because we've seen how others have trusted him before. You know, God's promise of his faithful presence got Noah through the flood. It got Moses and the Israelites through the wilderness. 
They got Mary through her miraculous pregnancy, and it even got Jesus through his crucifixion. We can trust Jesus because he's trustworthy. God keeps his promises. It's one of his attributes. It's what Jesus, stepping down from his throne in heaven and being born into this world, was all about. Mankind had failed to live up to God's standards by a lot. We sinned and fell away from God so far that we could never get back on our own. So Jesus came, born true man as well as true God, to keep that standard for us, to keep God's law perfectly without ever sinning in our place. But God had also decreed that there was a price to be paid for sin, and that that price was death. So an innocent Jesus allowed himself to be nailed to a cross where he became sin for us. His shed blood, his death, paid the price that God's law demanded for sin so that by faith in him all our sins could be forgiven. We trust Jesus because he died for us. We trust him because God raised him from the dead on Easter morning. Our proof that God had accepted his sacrifice in our place. His promise that death and the grave had been overcome. That by faith in Jesus, we have a place in heaven already prepared for us. Where people we have known and loved and lost will be waiting to welcome us home. We trust Jesus because his word is true. So may God help us live and die in that trust. Amen. And now may that very special peace of God that passes all understanding keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. I want to take a moment to uh, confess our faith uh, in our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the words of the Apostles' Creed, um, you'll find it, uh, uh, well, we'll put it on the screen for you. Why don't we stand as we confess our Christian faith together. This is the faith by which we're saved. 